Hey everybody, it's Tia Moore here with Next View Podcast. I am the host and I'm also the owner of the Next View Home Professionals real estate business. Um, we sell real estate here in Phoenix, Arizona to so many lovely different people, communities, businesses, and you name it. In this episode of Next View Podcast, we are gonna be exploring fair housing and exactly what that means. And the reason we're taking on this topic is because it's really important. And there's there's so much happening in our world, in our country, in our communities, that I think it's important to point some of these things out. And things that are happening in regards to um, gender discrimination, race discrimination, um, income discrimination, and, and different things that all fall within fair housing. And like I said, this this topic is really important to me because I'm seeing it and I'm also seeing things that um, within my own real estate community that are troubling to me. And I just wanted to bring these to the highlight and also educate the public so that they understand exactly how they should be treated and why and, and the history of this treatment. So in this episode, we're gonna talk about the history of redlining. Like I said, we're gonna talk about fair housing, equal housing opportunity and what that means and who it applies to. Um, we are going to talk about rental um, complaints on and, and fair housing or equal housing opportunity complaints. Um, we're gonna talk about, that's pretty much it. So I'm going to, I realize it can be a touchy subject for some people. And so what I, I want to read a quote that somebody posted on my Facebook page and I loved it. And I just wanna read it because I think it's an op if you're thinking about turning off this episode, it's an opportunity to engage you to stay and listen through the whole thing because I may surprise you. Um, so the quote is, in order to empathize with someone's experience, you must be willing to believe them as they see it and not how you, imagine their experience to be. And that's a quote by Brene Brown. And I thought that, I think that that quote is so important because a lot of times when a person explains their experience or a group of people explain their experience, um, sometimes it can be a natural reaction to simply become defensive and think for some reason they may be talking about you or you may take it super personal. And I think in this world, we need to take sometimes take ourselves out of the situation and just listen to that person. Sometimes it's just not about you. It's not about that person. It's, or I'm sorry, it's about that person and you need to take the time to simply listen to them to see if you can find a way to be supportive or to be helpful. And if you can't, that's okay too, but you need at least need to listen to their experience and not, um, not discredit what they're saying to you just because it may be different than your own experience. So um, anyway, that I hope you like that quote. Feel free to take it. Like I said, it's not mine, it's from Brene Brown. But I wanted to start off with talking about equal housing opportunity and what that means and um, how that originated. So it refers to the idea that all persons should be created, should be granted equal opportunities when it comes to renting and purchasing property, uh, real property. And so this is usually in reference to anti-discrimination policies and laws that have been set forth um, by the federal government. Now, I, I always like to tell people um, a law doesn't necessarily change feelings. For example, if, you know, if, for example, with so, we, we, we text and drive sometimes. If I'm, if I'm used to driving down the street and texting while I'm driving, and then today there's now a new law that's put into place that says you can't text and drive, 
If I am addicted to doing that, which I am not, by the way, but if I'm addicted to something like that, am I going to be able to just change it because there's a new law? Probably not. That's why when that law was put into place, there was a two-year grace period to get people to, to get people on board with it. Something um, something a little more recent, you know, a lot of the cities within our valley, um, and I know Maricopa County issued a requirement for individuals to wear masks when they're outside if they're over, you know, a certain age limit. And people are having the hardest time, um, a hardest time agreeing to wear a mask for a variety of different reasons. Some of them personal, some of them medical, some of them political. But either way, whatever that reasoning is, even though a rule or guideline or law has been put into place, that doesn't necessarily change hearts and minds, right? So I say that to say that just because we have fair housing laws, it just doesn't mean that everybody is on board with that. And throughout this episode, I'm gonna give you different examples of that. And I also have a guest that, um, that I'll bring on. Her name is Tasha and she's a mortgage underwriter, has been for a really long time. And so to get her outlook on you know, what she sees what she sees in the industry as an underwriter, somebody that doesn't have the face-to-face experience and how she sees um, she sees discrimination possibly happening for different people. So, <clears throat> so and going back to fair housing and the policies that were that were put into place, um, the protected classes are race, color, national origin, sex, familial status, and disability. So you can't discriminate against people for any of those reasons. And it, and it does cover most houses with the exception of um, very limited circumstances. And that's um, owner-occupied buildings with no more than four units, single-family houses sold or rented by the owner with the use of an agent. So um, as a real estate agent, any transaction that I'm a part of, that my client is gonna have to understand that I uphold fair housing laws. Not only not only do I do that because it's the law, but I also do it because it's the right thing to do more morally, right? We don't want to discriminate against people for whatever their circumstances. If they have the ability to afford a home and they want to purchase it, my job is to help them be able to do that. Um, I do know, of, I have had clients where, you know, there's there was definitely some discrimination there um, it, when it came to when it came to race. Um, I was working with a couple before, two professionals, African-American, and they made an offer on a home. It was a full price offer. And then it turned out that their offer was declined by the seller. We never truly knew the understanding why. The agent just called me and said, I'm gonna apologize. They're not going to respond to this offer. And because of their feelings, I also have to cancel the listing. So as real estate agents, we are held to that type of standard. So if a client tells us that they don't want to, you know, accept somebody's offer because they're black or they're, you know, Hispanic or whatever the case might be, then we do have an obligation to cut and sever ties there. And if we don't, then we also have, um, we can have legal rep, rep um, reprimand <laughs> for that same thing. So it happens i mean the the it, it happens and again just because it's the law doesn't mean somebody's going to uphold it and so somebody else listed that house i don't know how the conversation went i don't know uh with with the new agent that they hired i don't know <clears throat> i don't know how it was explained but it's really interesting to see um you know the different contrast you know one agent stood on integrity she stood with the law 
Um, and she she canceled that listing because that's what she had to do. Because there's no reason why somebody makes a full price offer on your home and you choose not to accept it. It's kind of strange. Um, we did, usually with showings, you don't see the owner, the buyer and the seller, they don't meet. But in this case, we did meet them. Um, and it, it, quite frankly, it was the, probably one of the strangest showings I've ever seen. But anyway, so these things do happen. You, you think of a, the situation in Michigan where there was a gentleman that had his, and I use that word loosely, there was a man who had his house for sale. He also happened to be a police officer. And when the family and their realtor were touring the house, he had framed on his wall his Ku Klux Klan application. And, you know, immediately that buyer was offended. They obviously didn't want to purchase that home. And they also made a complaint. You know, as realtors, we do tour the homes. We do go through the properties. And so um, that agent that listed that house had an opportunity to correct that situation before it escalated or possibly not taking that, taking that listing if it was going to be, you know, a, a, an issue in that thing. So anyway, <clears throat> so anyway, I'm going to, those are just a couple of examples that I can share with you from my perspective. And I, I have some other ones later on too, but these things do happen. And it's not just, um, it's not just race or nationality. It also happens in with, with, with income and with gender and with disability um, and income types. And so I'll go over some statistics with you guys so you can see, so you can, so you can have reference. Everything that I tell you, you can completely research on your own. I'm not giving you anecdotal um, anecdotal information with the exception of my own personal stories, which I preference, uh, prefaced when I explained that to you. But, <clears throat> but anything that I talk about as far as laws and, and, and statistics, all of that, you can go find yourself online. And I'm happy to cite my sources. If you guys have any questions, you're more than welcome to reach out to me about it. Um, some different, some examples of these types of discrimination within race, color, religion, sex, disability, familial status, or national origin include refusing to rent or sell to a house to a person, which I gave you those examples, um, refuse to negotiate for housing um, or make housing unavailable, setting different terms or conditions or privileges for the sale or rental of that dwelling. So for example, if you said, okay, for this person, I would charge this amount but because you don't share my background, um, this is what I'm gonna charge you. Or, you know, because you're a single woman, I'm gonna charge you this price, but because you're a married couple, I'm gonna charge you this price. You just can't do those things. Um, provide a person with different, or I'm sorry, I, I talked to you guys about that already. Falsely deny that housing is available for inspection, sale, or rental. Um, and then make, print, or publish any notice, statement, or advertisement with respect to sale, rental of a dwelling that indicates any type of preference, limitation, or discrimination. So I don't know how many of you guys know this, but in real estate, um, whether we're realtors or loan officers, our advertising um, has to be, can't be discriminatory in any kind of way. So for example, the easiest one I can say to you is, a lot of people will sometimes say, well, I want you to list that my house is a family home. Well, we actually can't list, uh, say a house is a family home. We cannot use those words. And the reason why we can't is because it it's discriminating by marital status or, or familial status, I should say, not marital status, familial status. So this is to say, well, if you don't have a family, you can't purchase this home because it's 10 bedrooms. 
as if a single person can't. They can if they want to. And so we can't use any type of language in our advertising, whether it's online, whether it's in print, that would deter or possibly discriminate against those people that are looking to purchase those homes. And some people might think to themselves, well, that wouldn't happen. I mean, if I didn't have a family, I would still simply just go and look at the house if I wanted to. You may think that, but you, if you're not in that situation, you may not know exactly what that person would do. Um, you can't impose different sales prices or rental, or rental charges for the sale of a rental of a dwelling, again, based on the protected classes that I explained to you. Um, you can't evict a tenant or a tenant's guest based on those guidelines. You can't say, well, your tenant, you know, doesn't speak English, so I'm going to, I, I want them to leave. You can't do that, those things. Um, limited privileges or services or facilities. Guys, I could go on and on and on. So, and then the same thing applies to mortgage lending. Theirs is a little different. Um, as far as what the items are, because obviously they're not showing houses, they're not doing that sort of thing. However, if they were to refuse or to, to make a mortgage loan or provide other financial assistance of a dwelling because of the location, um, refuse to provide information regarding loans because you think that person can't afford it or they can't qualify, um, imper impose different terms and conditions on a loan, such as a different interest rate, points and fees, which is extremely important because we're going to talk about that with Tasha when we interview her a little bit later in our podcast. Um, and, and then I'll give examples at that time in regards to those to those situations. But you, you simply can't do these things. And these, these guidelines didn't come out of thin air. They came from the Fair Housing Act. And it didn't occur till 1969. And what happened starting in, I wouldn't say the 1930s, the government would provide reports or redlining pretty much to mortgage lenders and telling them the places that would be best to offer loans to, meaning this is where you should offer loans because this is where you'll be able to make the most money. And so what happened is a lot of communities of color that, you know, if they applied for a loan or they wanted a loan, they were denied for those loans. And we all know that a lot of people take home equity and they use it to send their kids to college or maybe they use their home equity to build a business. Ultimately, we're looking for ways to advance our advance our life, our lives or the lives of the people that we love. And if for from 1930 to 1969, these people were denied loans because of simply where they lived, that creates a significant economic impact on the people that lived in those communities. What's interesting too about redlined communities, which you can look this up too, because an NPR did a study on it, is that the, the, the communities that were redlined, if you compare it to communities that were not today, there's a massive uh, disparity in equity. So for example, if you take a, take a neighborhood that was redlined versus a, there versus a neighborhood that wasn't, there's almost about a 250,000 difference in the value of homes compared to the two communities just because of redlining. The other interesting factor in that study showed that communities that were redlined tend to be, tend to have less amenities. And when I say amenities, I'm not even talking about luxury amenities, I'm talking about trees. Something as simple as trees and parks for kids to play in. And why is that important? Well, the more trees you have, the more, the cooler it is. So, you know, you, you see, tend to see these communities that have a lot of cement, 
but they don't have as many trees. And what happens, those communities end up in having higher temperatures. Those higher temperatures also affect how people are able to cope with, to literally to cope, um, you know, and it affects their health. There's no parks, there's nowhere to go up. There's no, you know, there's not a lot of businesses that we're building in those communities that are still recovering. And, and that has a, a, a huge impact on a community and how they're able to thrive and, and move forward. So what happens is you either have one of two things. You have people that stay, that have stayed in these communities, actually one of three things, people who have stayed in these communities and they've toughed it out because they've been there for a long time. You have people that move out of the community and maybe they'll move into a suburb, which could they possibly face discrimination if it's completely segregated? Possibly because our cities are heavily segregated, not legally, but people tend to self-segregate. Um, and there is, you, you can look at studies, there is a significant impact on the areas of appreciation because of this um, and school districts and things like that. But um, what was I saying? So when you're, when, when or people leave, or the other thing that you're seeing a ton of is um, those type of communities have a lot of industrial buildings that are built around them. And so now, you know, possibly their water can be contaminated. Um, it's hotter because they're, they're, you have this industrial smoke and it's creating a, a kind of a vacuum situation. It's much hotter, much more humid. And these people are more susceptible to health issues. There's not hospitals that are localized because again, during the redlining period, that was not the ideal place to maybe put those resources. So it's, it, it creates a long-term effect. But the other thing that you're seeing right now is you're seeing a lot of those communities, if they're not industrialized, they're becoming gentrified, where you're seeing people say, okay, well, these areas tend to be centralized to, um, to the city. You know, maybe they're close to downtown, closer to, you know, highway access, you can get places faster. Well, we want to come in and we want to, you know, revitalize these communities. Maybe there's government subsidies or incentives for people who are willing to do that, which is great. Um, but a lot of times the people that already live in these communities, they can't even afford to, they can't even get a loan because of everything that's been happening. Or perhaps they, they were not be able to get the loan to be able to invest in fixing up a property. And so you, what you see happen is you see people moving into these communities, they're paying a lot of money to do it and make their homes nice. And so the last thing they want is for the, the prior aesthetic to affect their future ability to earn equity. And so it creates conflicts within these communities, which is just crazy. Um, but all of this because of redlining. And this was, again, like I said before, this was government. So when people talk about systemic racism, systemic discrimination, this is this was instituted by our government. So it's, it's, it's definitely deep-seated. It's not something that you just pick out of the thin air. That is why these laws were created to to start to correct those wrongs, but it's really hard to do that when you're constantly, <laughs> when you're constantly starting from, you know, 30 years behind the line. And I'm not telling you this as a complaint, I'm telling you this so that you can be aware and you can understand that if you choose to, you know, move into a community that's being, that's being gentrified, if you choose to um, work in a community or build a business, you need to understand where you're going, the history of it and why and what's happening. Um, and you definitely need to leave discrimination behind you. It should not be a part of a part of your life ultimately. Um, 
going back to just going going back a little bit to what I was saying before as far as um, as far as amenities and trees and different things like that, they truly do increase your level of oxygen in your body. And if you're not able to <laughs> even breathe or get clean air through circulating throughout your body, ultimately you're going to face a health crisis. And if you look at what's happening with the COVID-19, the communities that are most affected are communities in African-American community and the Hispanic, or Hispanic communities. And and a lot of it can be tied to this you guys and so it's something that you should truly be taking serious um the other thing that happens is you know we do have we have the housing and urban development that's required to you know enforce fair housing laws and do research and make sure they're understanding exactly what's happening in these communities and through urban development um, it's supposed to help improve the community, improve the cities overall, not just the financial, but also for the people that live there and work there. And what we're seeing is that a lot of complaints that are going to HUD are not being logged. Um, a lot of the complaints are going to different housing agencies that specialize in fair housing issues. And I'm sorry if you hear um, background, I keep hitting the table. Um, but there is the National, National Fair Housing Allowance Alliance NFHA. Um, they did a 2018 study where they were looking at discrimination complaints in just 2018 and they were up by 8%. So over 31,000 people complained that they had been discriminated against in regards to in, in their search for housing. Um, where in Southwest specifically, so in Arizona and other Southwest cities, we had close to 3,200 complaints, which is a pretty high number. They started tracking these numbers back in 1995. And and the fact that they're seeing these numbers go up is definitely a backward, <laughs> is, is definitely a backward trend. You Ultimately, when you see these laws going into place, you see people, um, you know, being familiarized with each other more so because of the internet, because of social media, ultimately this should go down, but it's ultimately creating a higher um, rate of discrimination. So some of the complaints that have been logged that have been based on race, I would say, at least based on the reporting, you had over 40% that were specific to race, um, specific to disability. You had, you know, a, a significant number, familial status, sex, national origin, but race was the number one. Race and disability were one, number one and number two. And even military, people have been com discriminating based on a veteran's veteran or military status. And I can tell you, I see it. You know, people get an offer on their house and it's a VA loan and they automatically get defensive and they're afraid of what's going to happen because of these crazy stories they see in regards to VA loans. And I've even seen it in the real estate community because, you know, realtors tend to put information out there that may or may not be uh, fair housing violations. A lot of times it is, especially I've seen it in the last month or so. I've seen it go up quite a bit. I mean, I literally have a whole stack of paper of different things that realtors are saying that are definitely discriminatory and they're saying it publicly, which is nuts. 
but people are being discriminated against because of military status, because of their source of income or receiving rental assistance. I can tell you from looking at next door, I see it all day long where people are complaining about Section 8 recipients and the fact that they receive assistance and different ways of discriminating against them in their communities um, or age or student status. Sexual orientation is a huge complaint, which unfortunately is not a protected status, but it is, so people are complaining. My guess is the law will need to change in order to start the process of decreasing these numbers. But again, it hasn't necessarily happened within the last few years compared to the, you know, based on the 2018 study. Um, there's also complaints because people retaliate when um, when they bring up that something is a fair housing issue, which is which also is a big thing. So I implore you to go and look up the report by the um, National Fair Housing Allowance so that you can see for yourself exactly what people are doing. I can tell you, or what people are complaining about. I can tell you from a real estate perspective, um, you know, we build our business to be as diverse as possible, as inclusive as possible. And that is not only with the people that we hire, the people that we work with, the people that we partner with, um, but also our clients. Like we are very welcoming. We want to work with all different kinds of people because the, the more diverse our circle becomes, the better educated we become as human beings. And I truly feel that um, I run a business that way because I care. I just like to know different things. I like to know a whole lot of things about, <laughs> I like to know a little bit about a whole lot of things because one, I just feel like, I just feel like having that information, it allows you to connect with people in a different way. And um, it also allows me to just simply broaden my horizons. You know, when I travel, when I go places, it allows me to connect with people because I'm understanding them from where they are coming from. And I understand that not everybody has that same thought process, but I bring this up because as I mentioned in my real estate community, I've just seen language and conversations that don't sit right with me. Um, for example, there is a, a multiple listing service or realtor board that recently outlawed or I can't say outlawed, but they recently said that the use of master bedroom is no longer an option in their MLS. And what, what that means is ultimately, people say the biggest bedroom in the house, they usually label it the master bedroom. It usually has the larger bedroom and it usually has the best location in the house. Um, and it usually has an attached bathroom, at least in Arizona. And, um, so this was an MLS in Texas and they said, okay, we're no longer using that. We can use primary bedroom or we can use uh, like owner suite, different things like that. Quite frankly, I've seen builders using it in Arizona. They say owner suite, they've been saying it for a long time. So um, so it's been, it's been being socialized for quite some time. However, this MLS decided to make a policy in regards to that term. And I was on a realtor thread and just seeing different people share it. And I <laughs> I thought it was funny because people were so outraged that they could not say the word master bedroom. They were so offended and everybody immediately jumped to saying, okay, well, it must have something to do with slavery. Um, I don't think a master in slavery, I don't think that people are gonna think of it that way. Well, ultimately I want you guys to know that it has nothing to do with slavery. 
it has something to do with gender discrimination. The master bedroom was considered the man's house or the man's the man's enclave because the man so-called made the money. And so that is the reason why they're getting away from using that term because it's not gender friendly. Um, and, and I don't really see a big deal with it. Yes, it's a change in our terminology, but how hard is it to change what you write in the listing? It's not hard at all. Um, Everybody knows that recently there have been tons of protesting about police brutality, about um, systemic risk discrimination and different things like that. And, you know, just me seeing comments, it makes me wonder how many people have worked with somebody that truly didn't care about them or their community or how they treated them because they had these, these set, set of beliefs that are immovable and 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 my question is i think it's okay to have beliefs that are that you might feel are immovable i find myself being very fluid with a lot of things except for morality but um my question is how can you work with somebody if you have such disdain for their community and as a professional that works with the public how can you truly do that and I'm not asking this in an attacking way. I'm simply asking this in a way that I, I, I really want to know. Because if you can make things, make comments and saying things like, um, these protesters are clearly un-American, which I thought was probably the most PG of many of the comments that I've seen online. Um, you know, last I heard, protesting was the First Amendment. And that is, you can't get more American than that. But apparently, that's not true in some for some realtors because um, a lot of people liked it too. Someone said, if black people would work as good as they protest, America would be a better place, which was interesting. Um, somebody said, get a tank for after dark and start boiling them down, which... I think it's very interesting that you want to do that when people are protecting their First Amendment rights. And then my other question, how do you go work with somebody? Let's say somebody just protested and that's the comment you made. Can you truly represent them in a way that makes them feel inclusive, makes them feel that their best interests were at heart? I don't know. Can you? I wouldn't feel like you could. I probably wouldn't want to work with you. Um, let's see. I wonder if we could get a plane and dump the laboratory contents right on top of them. That was very classy. Um, it says, how many black lives mattered at Planned Parenthood? Which I thought was a very interesting comment to make. Um, and some of these are just so bad that I'm not going to read them because I just don't even want some words to come out of my mouth. Um, when we say master, we're not talking about slaves. It's so ridiculous, just get over slavery by now, which like I told you guys before, the master bedroom had nothing to do with slavery. It, had to, it has to do with gender. One person said, um, I'm, I'm white, so I'm privileged. Not my fault I was born white. I was just the fastest swimmer. Maybe next time you choose different parents. I don't know. I thought that was very classy. One person said, um, 
At this point, we need to treat these people like enemy combatants. And what's interesting is one person, <laughs> one person posted something in regards to Muslims, and this is a realtor, she posted something in regards to Muslims, and, and, and my assistant corrected her and showed her that what she wrote was false, and she said, well, I don't care because I don't like her politics. So she was going to leave it up there because she just didn't like the politics, so she didn't mind smearing a person's name or their person because she didn't like their religion. So that was that was very interesting. So as a real estate community, I think that we are held to a higher standard and we should be because we work with the public. Um, the same applies with loan officers, with lenders. And I think that failing to do so should result in you leaving the industry, quite frankly. If you cannot work with all people, if you cannot be inclusive, then you really should just go and find a different job or something else, I don't know. But you you can't tell me you're an objective human being if you go and actually write these comments on the internet. And so I question, if you're writing these on the internet, what do you say when you come into contact with people? What do you say when a person comes into your open house and they have a different background or a different religion or a different um, nationality or race or um, maybe they speak a different language than you? How do you treat those people? Because you can't tell me you're treating them fairly if this is what you put on your social media and you're really comfortable and confident about it too, which is the most disgusting thing that I've ever seen in my life. So <clears throat> when we, so going back to what I opened the podcast with, we can have laws and we can change, we can, we can change things from a legal perspective, but we can't systematically change until people change, until people are held accountable for the things that they do, for how they treat people and how they're impacting people. Some may think it's something small, some may think, some may not think about it at all because they truly don't care, but I think that, you know, we're in order for our country to move forward, in order for us to grow, it does need to change. And again, a law isn't going to do it. It's going to happen with people. And for you to say it's not systematic, you're just completely wrong. And you can go and look at the comments. You can go to your Google. You can look at the statistics. You can look at the reports. And I think you will realize that I'm right. I'm sure that there will be some people that make comments on this podcast and they're going to have a completely different agreement. And I'm okay with that because I know that everything I've told you has been fact-based. So if you are going to dispute anything that I say, make sure that you come with me and you come with facts. And if you truly want to learn, you truly want to get more information and you truly want to grow from this, then I think that's a great step. And I, am, I invite you to reach out to me and we can work together and find ways where we can make our community a better place and more inclusive. So we have a special guest in studio. It's a good friend of mine, Tasha. She is a mortgage underwriter and I asked her to be our guest today so she could talk to us a little bit about what she experiences as an underwriter, some things that she sees where um, you know, we still have some improvements to make within our system and how she points out things that could be discriminatory. Tasha, thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. How are you doing today? I am good, I am good. Good. Hanging in here. Good, good, good. So one of, it, it's it's really interesting because I have had experiences with clients where um, we really had to fight to get their loan approval, and you know they were completely qualified. And I've had it, I had one situation in particular 
uh, with a gentleman and they didn't want to they didn't want to approve his loan because they thought he would quit his job in the future <laughs> it's so it was just the most strange thing and you know it if it were not for somebody in the process that was just kind of fighting and sticking up for him he wouldn't have gotten his loan it's so crazy so i wanted to take this time to ask you about some of the things that you see happening as an underwriter and things that you have to point out and or possibly bring to attention that could be discriminatory whether it's income discrimination whether it's you know sex um gender discrimination or um or even or even racial or, or or national origin can you tell us a little bit about what you have experienced maybe in the past i think one of the things that i've noticed is our rates um we think of rates in terms of looking at a rate sheet and this is what the ltv is loan of value is this is what the credit score is mm -hmm. i've had on multiple occasions where i've had we're going to just say government loan, mm -hmm. where borrowers are pretty much same FICO scores. Obviously, it's 96.5 mm -hmm. LTV, CLTV, but one has a four and a half percent rate as opposed to someone having a three and three quarter rate. Wow. And you're like, why? Mm -hmm. um, I've had a couple of those where I've gone back and questioned. Okay. Why is this rate more? And then once I started to look at into it and go, okay, I see what race this is. We need to figure out why there's this mm -hmm. glaring difference in the rates for this person A and this person B. And then gone and found a couple of different examples to show, you know, you know, maybe it's this branch or this this office, mm -hmm. um, but. It's really because when you're underwriting, you may underwrite for a specific region or okay. different things like um, that. So uh, that's just rates is a really common thing that I have noticed being an underwriter that, you know, what is it, disparate, you know, mm -hmm. d differences between, um, you know, like customers, but have different rates. That's so interesting. And so do you currently, um, what is the process that you would take when you see that? How, is there an investigation with you? Do you have to compare the different regions? How does that work? I, you would, I would then escalate it to a department that handles that. Understood. Okay. Because it's supposed to be, a, you know, a mutual party outside of the loan process that, mm -hmm. are, that looks into this. Um, so it's handled by a compliance group, so to speak. That makes perfect sense to me. And so, how, I mean, you're just one person. So I wonder how often that's happening. And then, I mean, obviously you can't answer that part, how often it's happening, but. I would say talking to other underwriters, because I have brought this up to other underwriting friends okay. and they're like, yeah, I've noticed that too. Wow. So it's something that does happen um but then again you're kind of like you don't want to always be the person that throws the red flags <laughs> right so you you know you you have to it's one of those things where you have to tread um lightly you don't want to 
that this that turns into a whole different segment of this show. Got it. But, <laughs> I understand. Um, but you know, going into the the client you had as well, that someone had to fight for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've had that situation um, too, where for whatever reason, I can see something one way another manager or someone can see it completely different. And then you have to say that's apples and oranges, Mm -hmm. you know, and give examples of, well, if I had client a, you know, it would be, you would look at it this way. So why are we looking at it that, you know, differently now? Yeah. And it's one of those things that you can't necessarily say race plays in a part Mm -hmm. on it. I've had this happen with a lot of men. I don't know why. Okay. <laughs> it happens with males. Um, and you have this, I don't know about your bar, but he could have had three jobs in a short period of time, but could have gotten raises at each of those jobs and decided that with each job change, he, um, you know, it was more of an advan- advantage for him to you know, change the jobs mm-hmm. with three times. So someone says, oh, well, he has an unstable income. Not necessarily if I can prove if, you know, the income has been increasing. Yes, he's changed three times, mm-hmm. but his income has increased with each change. It Underwriting is such a subjective mm-hmm. profession. Um, you can give three underwriters three the same thing and you probably will come out with three different answers. Yeah. His his situation, I guess to give a little more information on it, this was like, I want to say four years ago. And his situation was he had been on his job for 20 years, maybe 25. Um, he owned tons of investment properties and he was purchasing a, a vacation home here in Phoenix. So lived in a different state, was purchasing a vacation home here in Phoenix, and the the underwriter was challenging, saying, well, is it going to always be his vacation home, or is he going to be quitting his job and moving to that state, and then he's, you know, you have all these mortgages, which whatever, it even if that were the case, that wasn't the case at the time that he applied for it. He was 800 plus FICO score, had plenty of reserves, Um, no delinquencies, just a stellar borrower from even the loan officer's perspective. But it was really interesting because the, it was the processor who actually fought. So it was, um, so the the borrower was African-American male, the loan officer was a white male, and then the processor was an African-American female. And she was, you know, in more communication with the borrower than the loan officer was once it got into processing. And so she was the one who escalated it. And the loan officer was not happy that she escalated it because he just didn't want to fight. He didn't want to ruffle any feathers or do anything like that. And so it's really interesting. He still owns that house. He still owns all of his other funds plus more. Um, Right. You know, a substantial real estate portfolio. And and keep in mind, that was the only one that had a loan. None of the other ones even had loans on them, which is is even more funny. (laughs) And so um, and so no issues there. But the loan officer really just didn't want to rock the boat. And the 
I, I questioned why. I questioned why it took his processor to go to bat. And, you know, and maybe it's just a situation, maybe it's cultural, they just don't understand. It's something that he wasn't the most comfortable with. But ultimately, it could have blocked this, you know, this gentleman's opportunity to create an additional stream of income with purchasing this vacation rental here in Arizona and, right. you know, ex- ex- expanding on, you know, his wealth. Even if you did have an occupancy issue, mm-hmm. which sounds like where she was going with her line of questioning, mm-hmm. if you have no, that's, it, I'm laughing. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she kept saying, well, I think he's going to quit his job. I think that's what he's going to do. And then he's going to have this other property. And it, it was we just so, I know. Think. And, and that was you know, the processor's it, argument. We, we, although I can do alone and I can think of a whole lot of hypotheticals, mm-hmm. I can't prove it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a hamster on a wheel. So you have to let that go. Mm-hmm. Um, I think going back to your main question, I think women, women, working women have a hard time too mm. when it comes to um, loan. And this is, is a based on gender. Okay. You ever have a client who is expecting? Yes. Looking for a job and actually either just had the baby and still on leave mm-hmm. or anything like things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, guidelines are kind of misconstrued a lot. I've had that um, before too. On that situation, um, which Fannie Mae, Freddie, FHA, they all it's pretty cut and dry Mm -hmm. but you have some people and this is against all races Mm -hmm. (laughs) that i've seen this particular incident happen Mm -hmm. is them denying loans because the woman is on some type of medical leave wow and you're not supposed to do that obviously but i've seen it happen and and what is what is is there a dispute process that you can go through how does how does a woman handle that with if that happens there is a dispute process um i've worked um with a company in which the client was actually going to sue the company because of it because it is a form of discrimination Mm -hmm. and the guidelines specifically say i mean you can't we're not supposed to ask medical information. Someone mm-hmm. says I'm on medical leave, you leave it at that. Um, I've seen other underwriters get actual medical documentation and I mm-hmm. shake my head like, ooh, I don't wanna know anything about that. Uh, <laughs> right, Whoa. your face is saying exactly <laughs> what I'm thinking. Um, but, you know, it says if they're on leave, if they're gonna be back to work prior than you know, the first month's um, payment, mm-hmm. you use whatever their regular salary, hourly work that you would have normally qualified for them for the loan and move on it. If they're going to um, be back to work after the first month's paid, you make sure they have at least two to three months PI, principal interest, taxes and insurance, and you move on. But some are still stuck on it while she's not working. Wow. And I've seen that happen. And that's ultimately a form of not only gender discrimination, but income discrimination, right? Right. Mm -hmm, Because they're discriminating because of the medical. That's interesting. So women, (laughs) 
It's got a bad rap, man. It's, rap. I know. You, so you can't, you shouldn't have babies and you shouldn't go on leave when you have them, apparently. Right. Or if you do, you know, just don't buy for a mortgage. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> it's so crazy. Snap back into it and get back to work. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, I think I, what I've started to see a lot of the times, companies are not getting borrower identification and putting it in the files. Okay. So, um, and you know, they've updated the, what is it, the 1003, mm -hmm. the application, where they do not put in that information. It's a different addendum now. Okay. That's interesting. Um, and I think it's because they're trying to get away from, you know, knowing a person's race or anything like that when mm -hmm. you're doing the loan. Yeah. But you get Tasha <laughs> <laughs> trying to get a loan. You don't need to necessarily see my picture. Yeah. yeah. To know, um, you know, what race I possibly am yeah so um there are still ways to um have some type of discrimination um based on race i think um what i've noticed is that a lot of loan officers are not in or companies are not in locations of where there is a lot of minorities got it okay. or they don't reach out to that market got it and when they do get you know the one or two or the handful of minorities they don't fight for them because that's not the bulk of their clientele interesting so here's my question for you G going a little bit back to <laughs> And, I'm, and it's the worst possible time to lose my train of thought. <laughs> and I totally <laughs> did. But if I, if, if we're going back to thinking of individuals, African-Americans, women, um, what, if, if, when the company was threatened to be sued, do they do they re then have somebody at a higher level look at that look at that file? Do they have do they settle? What is like what is a company thinking when that happens? That's it goes to the company's um general counsel. Which makes sense. Okay. At that point. Yeah. And then they're trying to figure out um what happened. Mm -hmm. How can this be overcome? And a lot of times it goes to a rational person and it's approved and moved on. But then it becomes a, why was this tailed up in the first place? What was your mm -hmm. thought process? And I, that person in particular, because of the, what happened was uh, written up. I don't remember, I don't know, remember the specifics, but I know that they were. Reprimanded. Yeah. So uh, as far as, let's say you have a white borrower, black borrower, and you see that there's a, um, you know, their, their files look pretty much the same as far as credit score, job history, that kind of thing, and they have two different rates. Um, and let's say the African-American person has a higher rate. How do, do loan officers get a higher incentive and in pay for a higher interest rate for an, a different individual? Like what is the, like how do they determine the rate that goes to each person? 
Well, if I'm not mistaken, your rate is built into your cost. Mm -hmm. So if you're getting a higher rate, that means your loan fees are going to be higher. Got it. So, so it's not necessary. You're just paying more fees. Got not it. only do you have a higher rate, you're also paying more fees on your loan. Which means the loan officer does make more money by charging more Correct. fees to that borrower. Right. And a lot of times, I'm just going to say this from experience, just knowing people, knowing family members, knowing friends, they may not know to question that that seems a little bit high if they don't right. have the experience in that in that area. And so that's why they are stuck with that rate. Correct. Got it. Because I actually asked that same rate, um, I bet same question on my last refinance on my own loan. Mm -hmm. um, I was quoted, um, we got three and a half percent rate, which is low. Mm -hmm. But as an underwriter, I'm underwriting three, three and a quarter. Yep. We both have high 700 scores, mm -hmm. good jobs. Mm -hmm. Why am I at three and a half percent and I'm underwriting loans with comparable borrowers and they're getting lower rates mm -hmm. and don't tell me about a discount fee because I don't necessarily I don't need to have a discount fee in order to get the three and a half rate I should qualify on my credit score well mm -hmm. so I I did an inquiry on my own loan <laughs> and and so what ended up happening with that did you get the lower rate I got the lower rate because you knew to ask and because I knew that mm-hmm um, which reading and knowing the process becomes for our community becomes important. Mm -hmm. Um, I think education as a whole on credit, obtaining a mortgage, yep. all of that is something that is needed, um, in our community. Mm -hmm. I know to read and look at these things because I work in this industry and you, you read know these things because you work in this industry. And we read and, and ask questions. And we read and yeah. And I mean, I think even through my process, I call it and ask you a couple questions. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> because, yeah, you know, I remember. Um, I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not good at. Mm -hmm. But I think um, the education part is crucial to our communities. And we don't um, have that. I was, um, there's only maybe three other people in my family who owns a home. Wow. How many generations of our kids don't have that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so, you know, it's crucial that as a young age, we start to explaining these things. And even you're, you're not too young, you're not too old to learn a new thing. Nope. I think um, the education piece on how to read and looking before we sign stuff, mm -hmm. not just taking someone's word mm -hmm. on what it is when we are making big financial decisions like this. And it starts with reading when you're making little financial decisions. It creates well, a trend, yes. right? And right. so I completely agree with you. You have to read through it. And if you feel like you're stuck, you need to ask somebody to help you. Yes. Yep. Um, it's very important because we are we we get so happy that we're being given the opportunity that everything else falls by the wayside. Yeah, mm -hmm. you don't care. You just see the prize. Yeah, yeah. 
And then it's not till years later that you realize, uh-oh, what did I sign? Mm-hmm. Um, that was very evident, what was it, 2006 through 2008 when everyone was getting the arm loans. Yes. And we all see how that happened. Mm-hmm. Yep. Nobody was reading. and Or they just, they saw the cash. This is what I'm going to get out of a refi or whether it was a purchase, whatever. And move forward and move forward oh yeah you know you know what you're right i will be getting raises mm-hmm. you know in the next couple of years so as the the rate you know changes or you know what i can refinance and i'll be okay yeah and nobody and, was okay most yeah. people weren't i should say yeah most people great point i think the biggest takeaway is from our discussion is education not be afraid to ask questions and understand that you may not know everything and to be, you know, because you, you need to have a resource. And if you don't feel like you have a resource, if you're working with in a loan purchase with, you know, professionals with a realtor, with a loan officer, you demand that they explain these things to you, that they can answer these questions for you. And if they can't answer them, you need to be questioning if you're working with the right professionals or not. Correct. Yep. Correct. Because awesome. you should be able to question any, every anything in that loan process, because that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. A whole lot of money. <laughs> so it's a lot of money, and you don't want to pay more than you need to. Mm-hmm. No, nope. there's plenty of other ways that you can invest that money in right. your family. So yeah, thank you yeah. so much, Tasha, for joining me today. You're so welcome. I appreciate I it. Pre- That's the end of this episode of Next View Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, see you later.